tonight on The Readout. I believe this race is over. So, so I am proud to endorse Donald Trump for president of the United States. I look forward to supporting him enthusiastically because I think it's time for the Republican Party to unite, for us to come together. Rafael, a.k.a. Ted Cancun Cruz, endorses the same Trump who ridiculed the looks of his wife and accused his father of killing JFK. Cruz is just one of many cowardly Republicans who have signed on to Trump's authoritarian revenge tour at the mere price of their own dignity. Also tonight, the alarming parallels between President Biden and Lyndon Johnson as each man faced re-election, including their roles in two very unpopular conflicts. But we begin tonight with writer E. Jean Carroll. Long before her name became synonymous with Donald Trump and her 1990s encounter with him in a New York City department store where he was found to have sexually abused her, she was known as a trailblazing journalist, a pioneer in the world of literary journalism. Her works have been published in countless magazines for decades. Readers took to her Ask E. Jean advice column to help solve their problems. She even hosted her own Ask E. Jean show on this very network's predecessor, America's Talking in the mid-1990s. The biggest manhandling trick of all is to know that there is no trick. All you have to remember is that you're a woman, and if you're a woman, you're precious. But like many victims of sexual abuse, she did not speak out about her encounter with Trump for a long time. And when she finally did in 2019, she says her life was forever changed. That is because for the past four years, she has had to endure defamatory attacks from Trump that she says derailed her career, wrecked her reputation, and threw her daily life into chaos. But don't take it from her. A federal jury agreed last year, finding Trump liable for both having sexually abused Carol in the 1990s and for defaming her in recent years. Now remember, Carol is just one of more than two dozen women who have accused Trump of sexual misconduct. She is the only one thus far who has received her day in court. And today, for a second time, she took to the witness stand to reveal in detail what the relentless attacks from the former president and his followers, which she said sometimes amounted to hundreds a day and included graphic death threats, have done to her. The big difference this time around is that she did so with her attacker, Donald Trump, sitting just feet away from her in the courtroom, making this week the first time the two have been in the same room together in more than 25 years. And as you would expect with Trump, he brought the drama, causing disturbances during her testimony to the point where Judge Lewis Kaplan threatened to expel him from the courtroom. And he wasn't alone in causing problems. Trump's lawyer, Alina Haba, was also rebuked multiple times by the judge. And with a prior jury already having found Trump liable, the only question this jury has to decide is what Trump's defamatory comments while he was president and his continued attacks on her have cost her in terms of her career, her reputation, and her emotional distress. Joining me now is MSNBC legal analyst Lisa Rubin, who was inside the courtroom today, and Claire McCaskill, former senator from Missouri, Missouri uh, MSNBC political analyst and co-host of the How to Win 2024 podcast. Thank you, ladies, for being here. I do want to start with you, Lisa. Talk about the scene inside that courtroom today. You know, Joy, the scene inside that courtroom today was not 
for a shortage of fireworks. And every time Donald Trump comes to court, I think I've seen the last of his egregious behavior. And yet today we saw it again. Trump was clearly talking to Alina Haba in tones that were audible enough for the plaintiff's table to hear. And as Eugene Carroll's lawyer, Sean Crowley, mentioned, if she could hear what he was saying, then surely the jury, which was even closer to him, right. could hear as well. And on a couple of occasions, he was essentially agreeing with his own prior statements when they showed video of Truth Social posts that he has posted, not only in the last couple of months, but even in the last week leading up to the Iowa caucuses, of him, again, denying the same story that a jury has already found credible. You could hear Trump say, that's true, or it was a disgrace. And he was admonished for that by Judge Lou Kaplan. The exchange between the two of them was an interesting study because Lou Kaplan does not suffer fools. And he has warned Trump, you have a right to be present here, but that doesn't mean that you can be disruptive. Right. And if you continue with this, I'll have no choice but to expel him. At which point, Trump volunteered, I know that's what you want to do. And Judge Kaplan responded, sort of more in sorrow than in anger, you just can't help yourself under these circumstances. What I didn't hear, but what the Associated Press is reporting tonight, is that Trump then shot back and neither can you. So wow. this is a person who remains wow. untamed. He did it again this afternoon. He was not admonished for it, and the plaintiff's counsel didn't bring it up. But... When he comes back to court next week and he is expected to return, mm -hmm. I, I would tell you I think Trump has one chance left with Lou Kaplan yeah. before he's removed from the courtroom and revoked that right to testify that Kaplan has offered him conditionally. What, what was E. Jean Carroll's demeanor when he was doing that? And what was her demeanor as she was testifying? What did she testify to? So E. Jean Carroll's demeanor today... Fortunately for her and for her side, was just as stoic and quietly graceful as it was during the first trial. If Donald Trump's presence was bothersome to her, you could not tell in her testimony. However, there was one point where she was on the verge of tears, where she was being asked to read a Twitter message that said in the most vile terms, basically, that she should kill herself. Wow. And she was on the verge of tears. And in contrast to his outburst when he heard something that he liked, former President Trump was totally unmoved by seeing a message where somebody said, essentially, that she should be raped and sexually assaulted, that she was too ugly for Trump to involve himself with, and that she should just go and kill herself wow. because she had brought this on herself. No reaction whatsoever from him. That, that does not surprise me, Claire, because that, that is who he is. You know, I just want to play very quickly a brief montage uh, of the way that Donald Trump has talked about some of his other accusers. She said I made inappropriate advances. And by the way, the area was a public area, people all over the place. Take a look. You take a look. Look at her, look at her words. You tell me what you think. I don't think so. I don't think so. When you looked at that horrible woman last night, you said, I don't think so. Oh, I was with Donald Trump in 1980. I was sitting with him on an airplane. And he went after me on the plane. Yeah, I'm going to go after. Believe me, she would not be my first choice, that I can tell you. Man. You don't know. That would not be my first choice. 
And Claire, I, I'm going to talk a little with you about politics because Donald Trump is using this as a political, you know, set of stump speeches. He didn't have to be in this courtroom today. He, he didn't have to go, but he's going to make a point. And this is the reaction that he got when he did the Access Hollywood tape in which he wasn't giving a stump speech. He was admitting that he likes to sexually assault women. And here's one of his fans. This is a woman. And I saw these for myself with my own eyes in Cleveland during the convention uh, the year that he was nominated. And that is what she wore on her body, this one particular fan. Trump can grab my with a down arrow. Since his fans don't care, including some of his female fans, his supposedly Christian fans, that is why he behaves this way. But I'm just going to let you comment. Yeah. Um, first of all, I feel sorry for that woman in that picture. Um, I feel sorry for who she is and the life she's living. I really do. Um, and, and I think what everybody has to realize here, I do think he's going to get kicked out of the courtroom. I think he wants to get kicked out of the courtroom. This is a courtroom campaign. This is not a uh, retail campaign. He'll do a few rallies, but he made up his mind. And you can look, Joy, once he was indicted on paying off Stormy Daniels and hiding it in New York, his numbers went up. They bumped up. He was struggling a little bit. I mean, people forget there was a time when Ron DeSantis was polling ahead of him. And then he got indicted again and they went up some more. And then he got it indicted again. His poll numbers have done a steady climb in terms of consolidating the Republican vote on the back of his indictments. He truly believes that the more he's in the courtroom, the more he's acting out, the more he is defying the deep state that's coming after him, the more the grievous gang that make up his supporters is going to be pleased and think that he's their guy. He's convinced them all it's all bull. He's convinced them all that he's taking this, these arrows for them because this is what the deep state does to people they don't like. And it has been effective for him so far. I will argue it won't be with swing voters and it won't be with those voters in the Republican Party who have said clearly they'll never vote for him. So it's not like this is going to, I think, help him in the general election, yeah. but maybe he's just not smart enough to see that. Right. And because his fans don't mind, his fans including female fans, women who would you would think would have some sort of self-regard and dignity, don't when it comes to him. I, I want to read just for the, for the two of you some of the threats that were made against E. Jean Carroll, who, again, you know, she did a show on what used the, 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 the predecessor to this network. My late, wonderful um, friend Don Wormley was her stage manager, who used to be the stage manager for this show. Um, it, she did a show. But this is a woman who's lost all of you know, her sort of public profile because of things like this. I hope you die soon. I hope someone really does attack, rape, and murder you, one missive presented in court stated. Another simply said, rape Jean, rape Jean. Joy, one of the most effective moments in court today was one where no one was talking at all. They were asking E. Jean Carroll during the remnants of her direct examination, Robbie Kaplan, her lawyer, conducting it this morning, how she felt on reading some of these things. And these were a collection of threats. One of the things they did was have their trial technician, Claire will know well that a good trial team has someone who can call up evidence really quickly for the jury and everybody else to see. The trial technician literally just did a scroll through some of these hateful messages. They weren't read aloud by Eugene or by anyone else. They were just there for the jurors and everyone present to look at and gawk at and digest. And I have to tell you, 
whether said aloud or just absorbed silently, the shock doesn't wear off that everyday Americans can be that vile in their speech. But I'll tell you one thing. The jury who last May found E. Jean Carroll's story credible, who said that she was both defamed and sexually assaulted, those jurors aren't the deep state. Right. They're ordinary people. They're not partisan hacks. Right. They don't get on the jury if they're partisan hacks, right? Yeah. So they're not deep staters. And the thing I keep coming back to, to Claire's point about swing voters, is Judge Kaplan opened this trial by instructing prospective jurors here are the facts that you need to assume are true. A jury has found former President Trump liable for sexually assaulting E. Jean Carroll by forcibly inserting his fingers in her vagina. And I'm sorry that this is a family show, but I want to say to swing voters, that's the guy who's likely going to be the Republican nominee for president. Yeah. And that is a true fact found by a jury of his That's peers right. several months ago. That is your nominee. So you need to make a decision about whether you're going to stand with someone who's a sexually assaulter or not. Yeah, indeed. And I want to very quickly, because you are also a former uh, prosecutor, Claire, let you comment on the other woman uh, who was in that courtroom today. And her name is Alina Haba who was also performing for Donald Trump. This is the one who said that it's better to be pretty than to be smart and that that's how she got her job, uh, according to herself. She also acted up in court, sitting down when she should have been standing before the judge, um, snapping back at the judge and saying, you can't talk to me that way. That, that, That the readout of it is kind of shocking. As a prosecutor, have you ever seen a performance like that before somebody who's a member of the bar and has to go back before judges? Honestly, the only time I've seen anything close to it is when there was a defense counsel that was impaired, who had a problem and was impaired and was acting, frankly, irrationally in the courtroom. But she is not acting irrationally. She is doing exactly what her client wants her to do. They are there to disrupt. They're not there to defend. They are there to win the presidency. They're not there to worry about how much money they find against him. Um, clearly, I think what she said today, what the lawyer for E. Jean Carroll said today, how much money will it take to get him to stop? I'm mm. not sure they can award enough money to get him to stop because he sees his ticket to freedom winning the presidency and he sees disrespect for the court and his lawyer showing disrespect for the court to his golden ticket to the presidency. It's vile. It's absolutely violent. It every woman in America and every man in America should be hey, disgusted. Joy, I, I got to j- break in here. Did you see when Dana Bash asked Nikki Haley about this? She said, well, I haven't really been following. Oh, God. It. Well, but, you know, I mean, talk about not pass the blush test. My she God. has been following and a jury has found him guilty of these things. She goes, well, if he's convicted, well, he has been found that a jury has found that he, that he, did, he did these it. things. Absolutely. And Nikki Haley's acting like it didn't happen. And it's after, really bad. After the Access Hollywood, not before, but after that, she became his U.N. ambassador because she doesn't care either. Dignity is in very very short supply in that party at the moment. And it is very sad. Lisa Rubin, thank you so much for being in that courtroom. We're going to have you come back and give us all of the rundown on it. Claire is staying with us because up next on the readout, we are taking a look at Trump's exhaustive list, exhaustive list of policy priorities for a second presidency, which boil down to revenge and retribution and why so many congressional Republicans and apparently so many American voters are so eager for that to happen. The readout continues after this. 
On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Join MSNBC's Simone Sanders Townsend, Michael Steele, and Alicia Menendez as they team up to host The Weeknd. We want to get the newsmakers, the people that are in the middle of what is happening. It's about the conversation. A lot of Americans check out of conversations. We want to check them in. Conversation we begin and that you continue all week long. The Weeknd, Saturdays and Sundays at 8 a.m. Eastern on MSNBC. I think we've already seen that President Trump is not a highly vindictive individual and that he didn't go after Hillary after he was elected in in 2016. President Trump, you're saying President Trump is not a highly vindictive people. He's literally pledged to prosecute his, to Joe Biden. He said he would do that. He said he would go after people who wronged him. I always have a tendency to look and see what people do not so much what they say. (laughs) Okay, time to break out the old side eye. Ben Carson is back. And so are his extremely bizarre comments. Looks like the gifted hands doctor needs a refresher on Trump's vendetta politics. Because in the end, they're not coming after me. They're coming after you. And I'm just standing in their way. Here I am. I'm standing in their way. And I always will be. I am your warrior. I am your justice. And for those who have been wronged and betrayed... I am your retribution. I am your retribution. Not going to let this happen. I just hope we get fair treatment, uh, because if we don't, our country's in big, big trouble. Does everybody understand what I'm saying? I think so. Well, that's just a sampling from this election season alone. It's a vengeance tour this time around. And that we talk about Trump all the time, we, we also need to talk about his voters. And I know, I know it's not popular in the media world to not venerate the great American voter. But as Tom Nichols writes in The Atlantic, these particular voters want revenge as well on their fellow citizens. Nichols writes, the Republican base actively embraces Trump's grievances. It emulates his pettiness. It supports his childlike inability to accept responsibility. These voters are not sighing in resignation and voting for the lesser of two or three or four evils. They are getting what they want because they, too, are set on revenge. Back with me is former Senator Claire McCaskill. And joining us is Jelani Cobb, Dean of the Columbia University School of Journalism and staff writer for The New Yorker. Thank you both for uh, being, thank you for staying clear and thank you for being here, Jelani. I, I want to talk about the media's role in all of this because sure. we were talking during our morning call, our therapy call, as we call it, <laughs> about, you know, the question of whether the media has always kind of pulled back when it came to, number one, criticizing the American voter and looking at them, you know, a little bit with a little more circumspection, but even candidates like Trump. And I go to the 1930s when the New York Times was doing style pieces on uh, Adolf Hitler Mm -hmm. and saying, oh, he's going to moderate himself Mm -hmm. when he gets into office and actual power is in Mm -hmm. his hands. 
I feel like that's happening again because people don't want to come at the voter. But these voters are actively saying, yes, we want a dictatorship. Yes, we want him to be dictator. Yes, we like autocracy. And sure. it's just not being examined. Sure. So, I mean, part of this, I mean, there's a historical problem and there's a contemporary problem. The historical problem is that we've cooked the history books. <laughs> you know, when, when we, we talk about the tradition of democracy in this country, we don't talk about the, the tradition of anti-democracy, right. of all the uh, reactionary and uh, authoritarian elements that have survived throughout the, the duration of American history, always there, sometimes more latent than others, um, but always potent. Mm -hmm. And that translates into the contemporary version. When we are covering these stories without the vantage point of just how wildly anti-democratic this country has been at various points in its history, we have an inflated sense of the impregnability uh, of American uh, institutions. Yeah. So consequently, you report on even the most outrageous and alarming things as novelties, as oddities, or quirks of a p particular personality. Uh, and so that's part of what explains the durability of Trump uh, and Trumpism. And then the, the last thing I'll say, one other thing, you remember when we were debating about whether or not this was economic anxiety? I was literally just going to follow. Okay, you read my mind. Yes, I do. Yeah, I mean, it was. It because was, people yeah. didn't want to accept that it's not economic anxiety. It's racial anxiety. It's demographic panic. And to your very point, um, the reason that we needed Rachel Maddow to exist in the world for most people to know how many Americans were fascist and That's were right. pro Hitler in That's the right. 30s, That's in right. the 30s and 40s, people wanted to believe that all of America wanted to overthrow Hitler and was and was disdainful of fascism when there was a giant chunk of America that was for fascism and wanted to replicate a Hitler in Washington D.C. I mean, look at the love letters essentially that Hitler wrote about American society to, and to Henry Ford. Yeah, and. and and to Henry Ford and to uh, the, the fact that he went so far as to send attorneys uh, to the United States to study Jim Crow before they implemented the Nuremberg laws. There, there were all these kinds of, of uh, hints and indicators uh, that we have this uh, anti-democracy problem that we don't want to talk about. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's there and it's always been there. We just don't talk about it. Claire, I mean, there's also this sense that there is a group there are there is a group of Republicans who know better. Right. Who know better, either because they have religious values or moral values or political values that should make them know better. And yet they behave as if they're completely numb to it. Let me play one of them. This is Mike Johnson, the Speaker of the House, who is an avowed Bible-believing Christian. So one would think he would bring his moral views to bear when it comes to things Donald Trump says. Here he is being asked by CBS News' Space the Nation whether he agrees with Donald Trump's statement that immigrants are poisoning the blood of this country. Take a look. That's not language I would use, but, but I understand the urgency of President Trump's admonition. He's been saying this since he ran for president the first time, that we have to secure the border. And I think the vast majority of the American people understand the necessity of that, and I right. think they agree with his position. But that statement goes beyond what you are personally comfortable with. It, it's, it's not language I would use, but, but I understand. Um, th Does that it sound hateful? From, well, it's, it's not hateful. God bless Margaret Brennan, but uh, Claire, <laughs> your thoughts? Yeah, um, you know, it, it is, it, it, listen, there are people who know better. Um, in fact, I have said before, and I'll say it again, one of the very few places that the majority of college-educated people support Donald Trump is 
the Republican elected representatives in this country, mm-hmm. whether they are state legislators, whether they're members of the House of Representatives or whether they're United States senators, they know better. But they have sacrificed their principles for power. And what Donald Trump has done, I mean, we've got to give him credit for this. He is a marketer at heart. That's all he is. He is a huckster. And he figured out that mainlining grievance to people who feel like they've played by the rules and that somehow they are supposed to be better than other certain types of people. And I think it was very hard for some of those people to look at the TV and see the most powerful man in America with his beautiful family, Barack Obama, as president of the United States. And Donald Trump felt that in his gut, and he knew he could go there, and he has repeatedly, blaming Mexicans and not microchips for the, for the lack of jobs, blaming Mexicans for any crime that happens, trying to make everybody who is other the bad guys. And that is a classic move, and it is a campaign that is based on grievance and appealing to these people who feel like they have been passed over and looked over. And the the unfortunate thing for us is that the guy who's running for president who actually gets these people, who actually has working class values in his bones, is Joe Biden. (laughs) And 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 that tees up the fact that it isn't just Trump. I mean, it has metastasized to the point where the governor of Texas is lamenting the fact that his troops can't shoot people who are coming over the border. Where we have a mother and two children, a ten-year-old and an eight-year-old, who were killed in his barbed wire, in his barbed wire. And this is something that goes unremarked upon and also unpunished. Because Greg Abbott got reelected soundly despite neglecting Uvalde and despite showing not an ounce of humanity regarding the dead people in his own state. Mm-hmm. People don't care. They've taken their voting rights away. He's taken their women's uh, autonomy away. And he just gets reelected. So when you look at populism uh, in this country, especially when you look at the type of populism that we're talking about. Yeah. This is all classic kind of right-wing populism, Uh, even down to the threads of racism and the prominent themes of anti-Semitism, all of it. Like, you go back and say, like, what these kinds of movements are in American history, point for point for point. The thing that I think is important to remember, and this is probably uh, one of the things that the election will be contingent upon, is that there is another tradition of populism in this country. Dr. King yes. is part of that that tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we talk a lot about George Wallace. We don't talk about Henry Wallace. Yeah. The interracial populist movements who were saying, we're not here to oppose uh, immigrants. We recognize your humanity. We're not here to oppose any other religious group. Yeah. We are opposed to anyone being exploited. There you go. And also, give me back the radical Republicans, because they were pretty dope. Uh, Let's go all the way back. Claire McCaskill, thank you so much. Delani is staying with me, because up next, we are jumping into the time machine and taking you back to 1968, when President Lyndon Baines Johnson suddenly ended his reelection campaign before the nominating convention even had time to begin. It is a period in American history that offers some stark warnings for the current president, Joe Biden. I will explain after the break. Hey everyone, it's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow.
Jen Psaki. Have you ever seen the House this dysfunctional? Rachel Maddow. If winning the election is his plan to stay out of prison, what happens in that election if and when he does not win it? Mondays, back to back. Talk about the stakes of this back and forth, given Trump's behavior. What do you make of the statement from Hamas? Why they're doing it? What, what do you think it means? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9 p.m. Eastern, Mondays on MSNBC. There are many parallels in the political careers and administrations of our 36th president, Lyndon Baines Johnson, and our 46th, Joe Biden. Both were elected to serve in Washington at a young age and rose to become influential senators, with Johnson becoming majority leader and Biden chairing important committees, Senate Judiciary and Foreign Relations. Both served as vice presidents to young, charismatic former political rivals from a new generation in politics, John F. Kennedy and Barack Obama. Obviously, their paths to the presidency were very different. But once in office, as we so frequently say, history rhymed. Both pursued ambitious domestic agendas, completing the civil rights agenda started under JFK and launching the Great Society social agenda in Johnson's first two years, and big economic items like the infrastructure law for President Biden. Now, as we enter President Biden's reelection year, the parallels to Lyndon Johnson's 1968 start to pop up again. Take the prospective Republican opponent, a paranoid, written-off political loser trying to make a comeback, presumably so he can abuse presidential power. After all, Trump has already borrowed Richard Nixon's Southern strategy, which has become Republican dogma since 1968, and heavily recycled his racist, fear-mongering law and order rhetoric for two elections now. On the Democratic side, it's not a mirror image of 1968, but there are some eerie parallels. A Minnesota Democrat challenging the incumbent president, a Democratic convention in Chicago this summer. There's even a Robert F. Kennedy in the race, just like in 1968. But none of that touches the most glaring parallel, an overseas war, albeit with some major differences. For Lyndon Johnson, 1968 meant Vietnam. The escalation of that war brought protests from all over peace activists, civil rights organizations, and leaders, including Martin Luther King Jr. Young people and students, many of whom faced the prospect of being drafted to fight and die halfway across the globe. Ultimately, Johnson decided not to run for president again. For Joe Biden, who is seeking a second term, it's American support and financial backing of Israel's ongoing war against Hamas, in which more than 24,000 people have been killed in Gaza since the war began, including more than 10,000 children. There are no American forces on the ground in this war and no draft, but it is backed by billions of American taxpayer dollars and perpetrated with the help of American 2,000-pound bombs. And it's causing a new generation of young people to turn against a Democratic president over a war they object to with some even weighing sitting out this election rather than choosing between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Back with me is Jelani Cobb. And, you know, Jelani, I want to read to you something that Nita Khan, who's a guest a guest on the show in the past, has said on Medium. And she says it's called 100 Days of Hell in Gaza. And she points out all of us live in a far more interconnected world as compared to the past. 
young people especially so, virtually everyone has access to reports, videos, images, etc., from the ground in an instant, thanks to the advent of social media and the online sphere. In short, Palestinians have been humanized, their voices heard, their plight visible for all who want to see, despite the extreme control of information in traditional outlets. We don't need a Walter Cronkite to tell us what this war is. People can see it. That is a huge difference from that era. It's a huge difference. Uh, and, you know, I think there are a couple of, obviously, there's a very big difference between the Robert Kennedy that was in the <laughs> It's a whole different kind of Kennedy. <laughs> very different uh, one, too. I also think one other uh, key difference is that, uh, you know, we lose sight of the fact that people actually thought of Richard Nixon as comparatively moderate. Mm-hmm. Uh, because remember in 1968, when he gets the nomination, the previous person was Barry Goldwater. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so they yeah. actually would, could pass uh, Nixon off as a kind of moderating figure uh, yeah. in Republican politics. That's not the case with, with Donald Trump. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, huge polarizing figure. But I would say that, you know, Nixon uh, and Trump have in uh, common having lost a presidential election yeah. uh, prior to this. Going and their criminess. The, cr- yeah. the criminess well, is kind of similar. There's that too. The other piece is that the Minnesota is very different. I mean, Dean Phillips has no shot. He's not on the ballots anywhere. He has promised uh, that in a Phillips administration, he would hire uh, Elon Musk. And Bill Ackman, the guy who chased uh, uh, Claudine Gay uh, out of the Harvard presidency. Mm-hmm. So he's setting a tone, which I don't think is going to help him with Democrats. Yeah, I, I don't think that that's going to win any <laughs> votes necessarily. No, not yeah. at all. I mean, but the, for, for Biden, though, to t- talk about sort of where he stands. I mean, he has this war. He's got a passionate, you know, um, affiliation and, and, and love for Israel. And he's going to stick with it. He's not going to change mm-hmm. his policy. But he does have this problem. I mean, he's going to Michigan soon. It's not clear Arab American leaders are going to meet with him when he gets there. He's going to meet with them. Some are being like, I don't even want to. How do you think he is navigating this? And do you think he is navigating it? Or do you think he's sort of putting it aside? Yeah, I mean, it's a very difficult uh, position. And it's one of the things that people have noted about, you know, one reason why the Democratic Party hasn't polarized in the same way that the Republican Party is, has, uh, is because of the diversity of interests in it. Yeah. You know, the fact that you have, you know, in Michigan, lots of Democrats who are Arab American yeah. um, and you have lots of Jewish Americans who vote you know, Democratic. And so, you know, it is the the complexity of the high wire act that he has to do. That's the nature of the Democratic Party. Yeah. Uh, now, if we also wanted to carry that 1968 uh, analogy forward, you know, Humphrey inherited, you know, the fact that that uh, LBJ stepped aside didn't mean that those problems went away. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and even uh, LBJ had his own misgivings about Humphrey, about yeah. whether or not he would withdraw from Vietnam. And right. so, uh, you know, he in- essentially inherited uh, the problems that were at LBJ's doorstep. Yeah. So the, to the people who are thinking, well, maybe if uh, if uh, President Biden decides he's going to step aside, yeah. there'll be some other Democrat that will, you know, con- they will inherit the same sort of uh, conundrum. Well, and then the other difference is because although Richard Nixon was a crimey individual, mm-hmm. when it came down to it, he stepped down. Right. He was willing to put American democracy before his own self-interest. And part of his self-interest was getting pardoned. Which sure. He did get. Right. But, I mean, if Donald Trump were to be the Richard Nixon and win in 2024, he ain't going nowhere. There's a good chance he just stays in office. And who in the Republican Party going to check him? But there's no one there who even has the strength. Ted Cruz has fallen down on his knees. They're all on their knees. Who would even tell him you have to get out of office? Yeah, I mean, if you think about it and you listen to, you know, what Bob Woodward has said about this and, you know, what uh, Carl Bernstein has said about this, we're both saying that, you know, even in Trump's uh, administration from 2016 to 2020, he far exceeded the level of just uh, audacity 
uh, that that Richard Nixon could ever muster. You yeah. know, the things far exceeded the alarming nature uh, of what we saw in Watergate. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's that's not. You know, I think a possibility. Yeah, this is where the parallels go completely awry and askew right. because Richard and Trump ain't no Richard Nixon. And right. we wish he was Richard Nixon at this point. Angelani Cobb, it's always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. Uh, and still ahead, a potentially momentous tug of war as the Supreme Court hears a case challenging the government's right to regulate industries. And we all know how much conservatives love regulations, right? We'll be back after this. Today, Leonard Leo's conservative Supreme Court heard a major case that could potentially undermine the government's ability to make sure the air you breathe isn't polluted, the water around you isn't full of chemicals, or that we can have any basic gun regulations. The case, at first glance, is about New Jersey fishermen, but it's actually a larger, more nefarious network of groups like Coke Industries, gun manufacturers, e-cigarette companies, and the big pharma industry who want to roll back a 40-year-old ruling that supports government regulatory power. What they really want is for the Supreme Court to reverse a 1984 decision that created something called the Chevron deference. That's a Supreme Court doctrine, which is now precedent, something this current court doesn't really care much for, where federal judges grant federal agencies latitude on how to interpret legislative statutes that are vague. Judges are supposed to follow a two-part process, examine the congressional language, and if the intent is clear, the matter is settled. If the language is ambiguous, the ruling court must defer to the agency on how the law should be carried out. That makes sense, right? The court says, let's defer to the experts on pollution, banking, or the FDA. But that's exactly why big business hates it. They don't like regulation. They don't want to put in place costly protections because why waste money making sure you're not drinking poison when they can make more money not caring about whether you're drinking poison? And based on what we heard today... The anti-regulation argument seemed to fly with the majority of Supreme Court justices, including the man seemingly hired to kill Chevron, Judge Neil, Justice Neil Gorsuch. Gorsuch, who's the son of Ronald Reagan's EPA administrator, who worked to slash air and water quality regulations, has said that Chevron deserves a tombstone. Justices Alito, Kavanaugh, and Thomas seem to share that sentiment in arguments today. Joining me now is Ellie Mistal, Justice Correspondent for the Nation. How'd the arguments go today? Yeah, they were bad, Joy. <laughs> um, to be very clear, what this case is about is power, right? Because Congress is going to write a law, there are going to be gaps because Congress is making political deals and also generally incompetent, right? So who gets to fill in the gaps? The way it is right now and the way it's been for the past 40 years Experts get to fill in the gaps. People who know things get to fill in the gaps. Science and math and facts get to fill in the gaps. You can't have that. What the conservatives want is to take that power away from the president, away from the executive agencies, and give it to themselves. So there will still be regulation after this case. It's just that Neil Gorsuch gets to decide how much mercury is, is, is allowed to be in the air. And John Roberts gets to decide how many people can die in a thresher mill accident before we declare it un unsafe. And Brett Kavanaugh gets to decide what banking regulations really should matter. So it's really the biggest, and I've said this before, this case represents the biggest Supreme Court power grab, taking power away from the people and giving it to themselves since 1803, since Marbury v. Madison. And the thing is, they, they were hired for this purpose. I want to play for you. This is Don McGahn. Don McGahn. This is Trump's former White House counsel saying that they actually looked for judges who would deregulate, which is why they picked Neil Gorsuch. Take a listen. There's a uh, major effort in the Trump administration, coherent and strategic and articulated, to try to do something about reining in the regulatory state. And Justice Gorsuch is an expert 
on those kinds of issues in the Chevron doctrine. T t talk about that. Well, it's not a coincidence. Uh, it's a part of a larger, a larger plan, I suppose. There is a coherent plan here where actually the judicial selection and the, and the, re and the deregulatory effort are really the flip side of the same coin. I think what really infuriates people, including myself, is that this is not jurisprudence. This is not them finding something, looking at the Constitution and seeing what the law is. It's a setup. They want to deregulate. They wanted to get rid of abortion rights. They want to get rid of voting rights. They just want to roll back the 20th century. It feels very systematic. So now we got to talk about Neil Gorsuch's mama. Yeah. Because as you pointed out, she was Reagan's head for the EPA. But was she one of these people who wanted to make the EPA succeed? No. She wanted to destroy the EPA from the inside. And this case that we're talking about was actually the government, the judges, the liberal judges, giving her leeway to destroy the EPA from the inside. But it didn't work because, see, back in 1984, conservatives thought that they were more likely to hold the presidency right. than the Supreme Court. Roll it forward 40 years. And Neil Gorsuch, the Nepo baby that he is, is continuing the family business of destroying the EPA. But he realizes that unlike his mama, he can't be voted out. Yeah. His people can't be stopped, right? He has lifetime power, and this is part of the general conservative movement. They understand that judges hold lifetime power and are not subject to the whim of the people. And so destroying the regulatory state through judges yeah. is now preferable for conservatives as opposed to trying to win their arguments at the ballot box where they often fail. I mean, this is the reason that the idea of expanding the court is starting to catch on, even with people who originally opposed it, because these these guys have a political agenda and ending regulation other than the regulation they impose themselves, ending women's rights, ending women's rights to an abortion, ending civil rights, just basically rolling back the entire 20th century Supreme Court jurisprudence. They're doing it so systematically that they're not stoppable if you don't expand the court. At this point, the difference between a progressive justice and a liberal justice versus a conservative or Republican justice is that the liberals believe in facts and the conservatives believe in vibes. <laughs> and they are vibing out right now. They are winning on the vibes and remaking the law back in their image of the 1950s and the 1850s. Yeah, how long till they get to Brown v. Board or the or the case where it said that, you know, uh, segregation schools can't get tax cuts? Because yeah. that was what they were. It's on Clarence Thomas's list. As long as you leave Jenny alone, Clarence yeah. Thomas is interested in yeah, hearing that case. He don't go interracial marriage. He right. don't keep that one because that's his own family. Um, what do you think this is? Does this look like a 6-3 or 5-4? Because this, this is going. This is gone. Leonard Leo's bought this. He's purchased it. This is what he bought and paid for, and this is what they're going to do. I do think it's going to be a 6-3. There was some, there's something with Roberts where he might do the thing where he overturns it without saying he's overturning it, God. but this is, this is going to be bad. Ellie Mistal, thank you. Don't climb a ladder after this, because if, if Neil Gorsuch didn't say they could be regulated, you're going to fall. Uh, thank you very much. Coming up, breaking news as U.S. forces carry out yet another strike against Houthi rebels. More next. The U.S. has officially designated the Houthis as a terror group. It's a move that came after the Yemen-based militants launched scores of drone and missile attacks on U.S. military ships and commercial vessels operating in the Red Sea in response to Israel's assault on Gaza. The U.S. and its allies have responded with multiple strikes on Houthi-controlled areas of Yemen, including earlier tonight when the U.S. military hit multiple missile sites in Yemen after a U.S.-owned commercial ship was struck by a Houthi attack drone today. There's a larger history here. While Biden was vice president, the Obama administration helped support the Saudi war against the Houthis. 
Biden had actually removed that terrorist designation, that designation from the group when he became president to help alleviate the humanitarian disaster Yemen was experiencing after years of war and famine. And his administration had participated in intense engagement with other U.N. Security Council members, which the Brookings Institution described as essential for Yemen's peace efforts to advance. The Houthis are just one part of the broader conflict that's been escalating ever since Hamas attacked Israel in October, and Israel responded with a military barrage that has killed 23,000-plus people in Gaza and counting. The Houthis are backed by Iran, which has also launched missile strikes in Iraq, Syria, and Pakistan over the the past few days. Earlier today, retired U.S. Army General Barry McCaffrey had a stark warning on the severity of the situation. Look, we're in a regional war. It's centered in Iran. Iran has a lot to lose from having this go catastrophic escalation. Uh, But they're now carrying out direct strikes, the Iranians, in Syria, in Iraq. The Israelis have run out of room. The global opinion is turning against them. If they lose the support of the United States in public, uh, they'll be in terrible trouble. So they've got to negotiate now uh, a truce and get their hostages back. A very serious situation that we'll be keeping an eye on right here at the readout. And that is tonight's readout. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win.